Welcome to the AGA Podcast, where we bring you small talk on big topics from within the world of gastroenterology. Thanks for being with us. Now let's get started. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the AGA Podcast, small talk, big topics. I'm your host, Matthew Whitson, and today we have a conversation with Dr. Lori Kiefer from Mount Sinai in New York City. So Dr. Kiefer is actually a health psychologist working in the division of gastroenterology, specifically in the Inflammatory Bowel Disease Center at Mount Sinai. So Dr. Kiefer has published numerous articles on a variety of topics, but really has focused in on resilience in patients with chronic illness, but also has worked on resilience and building resilience for trainees and medical professionals. Given the current climate in our country, given COVID-19, and really the increased burnout and focus on wellness across the medical professions from our trainees to our senior providers, we thought it'd be really interesting to invite her today for a conversation about resilience. What is it? How do we develop it? And how do we promote it in our trainees and each other? So excited for you to hear this. Take a listen. This is our conversation with Dr. Kiefer. So, Dr. Kiefer, thank you very much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Of course. So, before we start anything, can you just tell the audience a little bit about yourself, who you are, what you do? Mm -hmm, Sure. So, I am a GI psychologist, which means I have a PhD in clinical psychology and did further training, residency, etc. in health psychology. And then for the last 20 years... I have applied health psychology principles specifically to digestive diseases. So that's a very unique field. So how did you end up in that area, if you don't mind my asking? Yeah, it's so totally accidentally. I always say I'm like the accidental GI psychologist. But when I was in graduate school at SUNY Albany, my mentor, Ed Blanchard, who was really one of the early health psychologists. I mean, health psychology is like a relatively new field. He, we had to do these projects um, when we started. And he said, Lori, I want you to teach these people with irritable bowel syndrome how to meditate. And I, for your project. And I was like, what's irritable bowel syndrome? And I was from a relatively formal family. And I was like, how am I going to tell my parents I'm studying bowels? I went to school for psychology. (laughs) But everyone said, oh, just do the project, you know, do a good job. That'll get you very far in grad school if you just really kind of like do what you're assigned. And so I did. And then as I was working on that project, I just became fascinated with the brain gut connection and really never left. Fantastic. So obviously you've done a lot of work in the kind of clinical realm as well, but I see looking through your publications and everything else, you've obviously integrated other components of wellness and physician wellness and burnout. Mm -hmm. And the topic that we're going to talk about today, which is resilience, both in the clinical realm and in the professional realm. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, I, so I started out kind of more traditional and, you know, kind of the concepts of, you know, psychological comorbidity in GI diseases. And, you know, we certainly know in the disorders of gut brain interaction and the esophageal disorders, there's a lot of comorbid depression and anxiety. And so that was sort of my bread and butter for a long time clinically and even research wise, all the interventions 
intervention studies that they developed were really around mitigating those factors and in turn mitigating the symptoms. But in sort of the the second half of my career here, I've really come to recognize that, you know, we're almost too late when we start addressing depression and anxiety. And I, I particularly say this in inflammatory bowel disease where I'm currently at, if you've developed depression or anxiety in the setting of your IBD, we've failed you, right? We've we've kind of failed to to uh, attend to your emotional well being, and so that's really been a psychological shift for myself okay. to really focus on resilience and on prevention and how do we take people who have a health crisis of some sort, a diagnosis of some sort, achalasia, you know, even reflux, you know, and build um, resilience and prevent them from going on to feel disabled, prevent them from going on to feel like they can't work or enjoy their lives. And that's translated as well, I, I think, into the providers, right? When providers talk to patients with that mindset, that resilience mindset, they're more satisfied with the visit as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm sure you've been following this, but in the literature more and more, there has been talk about building resilience as a skill in our Mm -hmm. trainees early on, even in medical school to really succeed in medical school. And obviously, yeah depression, anxiety, the increased suicide risk, all, all of the stuff that we've seen over the last maybe five to 10 years, mm-hmm. uh, this is an important skill set that we're trying to implement earlier on. Yeah. And I'm glad you said that because I, I think that a lot of times people have historically thought of resilience as sort of a stable trait, like you're either born resilient or you're not. So I, I like that you're framing it as a skill because that's exactly what it is. It's it's a learnable skill. And a lot of times you can leverage challenges and and transitions in life to build that resilience. So before we go into kind of how to do it, could we just go down to a granular level and say, what is resilience and what are we talking about for those who may not be as familiar with the terminology we're using? Yeah, for sure. So, So basically, resilience is the ability that we all have to bounce back from an obstacle, bounce back from adversity. And not just bounce back, but thrive from it. So our goal isn't just to survive a tragic event. It's to actually grow from it. And resilience is really based in this concept of growth, a growth mindset. People can change. People can learn. People have the profound ability to adapt to whatever comes their way. And everyone has resilience. It's just a matter of how much they have. Okay. So are there certain... If you looked at someone, what would be the actions that they may do that you would say, oh, that's an action of resilience? Are there specific traits or are there specific things that you see that that kind of line up with that? Yes. Great question. Yes. So, you know, resilient people tend to, I mean, they have that grittiness, right? So that means that they they tend to have thick skin. They can persist despite obstacles. They don't give up at the first try. They're the ones that are submitting the grant over and over again or trying the procedure over and over again. They tend to have passion for something um, (laughs) that they sort of pursue um, that drives them above and beyond the setbacks. I think the bottom line is resilient people are not defeated by setbacks in life. Okay. Okay. 
All right. So we have that kind of broad definition now. How I would imagine that it's an important skill to develop for medical students, for trainees, but also for faculty. So if you're someone that runs a division or someone that runs a clinical practice and you have a large group, especially in the climate we're in now, and both of you and I are in New York, so we lived through COVID, I guess what actions can people take that lead to building resilience in trainees and themselves or in colleagues? So there's, you know, the good news is there's several different ways to build resilience. It's not just one path. The overarching goal is to really kind of understand your own personal strengths and capitalize on that on those. And so, you know, starting with, you know, being a let's say a division chief, right? You want to make sure that you're identifying and elevating your faculty strengths. Right. So some people might be super creative. Some people might be, you know, very, you know, good with writing. Some people might be very good with follow through, but really kind of setting up that culture in your division amongst your faculty of of strengths, not focusing on what people are not good at, but assigning people um, strengths and reinforcing that. The other, I think, component for, you know, more junior people or for for regular faculty is to really focus on savoring positive emotions. You know, we don't, as, you know, healthcare providers, we're sort of always focused on the next crisis or the next bad event or the next, you know, error that we make. And we forget to celebrate the successes that we have. And we know from the science that positive emotions and savoring positive emotions, so joy, pride, gratitude, you know, love, awe, amusement, um, all of those actually mitigate the negative effects of stress, of, you know, low morale, of being busy, of being afraid. And so I think that's something else that can be really elevated in in GI practices, um, taking time to show gratitude, taking time to show appreciation, that type of thing. So when you're working with someone, if you're working with a trainee, let's say, mm-hmm. how do you get them to reflect on their positive skills? And I'm thinking back to like every time you work with a trainee, you ask like they do an endoscopy or something and you ask them how that went. And even if you ask, so what went well for you? like we're trained to do in feedback training, <laughs> yeah. they invariably tell you what they did wrong before what they did right. Yeah. So how do you working with them get them to hone in on that positivity? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And that's a really practical way, a practical way to do it. I, th- I think you want to kind of have in your arsenal a list of positive things that people can draw from. I mean, I'm very much into skills. I mean, we, we can't talk about these things in the abstract, right? And so it's mm-hmm. sort of like, what went right? You know, did you have a good relationship with the patient? Did you take your time? Did you, were you safe? Did you acknowledge, did you show gratitude to the people around you, the nurses, the, the staff that helped you and, and kind of have in your mind as the supervisor, a list of things that could have gone right <laughs> and make sure you elevate those as well. You know, I think the other part of resilience training is self-compassion, right? And, and physicians in particular really struggle with this. They're very, very hard on themselves and being able to sort of recognize, you know, if, if, you know, one common way to do it is if somebody else did that scope and you were critiquing them, what would you say? Would you say the same 
things about the nitpicky little nuances that you did wrong? Or would you be much more congratulatory? Sometimes just being able to be your best friend and not yourself can make a big difference in feedback. Yeah, we're not great with that. That's. <laughs> I mean, again, I know I'm supposed to focus on the positive skills that I have, but I will recognize that that's yep. not necessarily what we're great at. Yeah. Do you have tools when you're working with someone to get them to, f- I guess, besides for having them put themselves into someone else's shoes, mm-hmm. is there another way to get them to really reflect on what they do well? Like if you really push them? Yeah. I mean, I think you can do sort of visualization. I think you can, you know, we're not going for, for Pollyanna, right? We're, we're, mm-hmm. We know that you want to be somewhat realistic, but you know, when you think about the optimists, right. And everyone, you probably heard, you know, optimists live longer, optimists have better health outcomes, even if they're not accurate, they, they're happier, right? And there's, there's three, optimism is sort of an attributional qual, uh, skill. So, you know, people who are optimists tend to not see adversity as um, permanent, you know, they don't see things as pervasive, all encompassing about themselves. And they don't see things as internal as something bad that is it about their character. And so when you hear somebody or you hear a trainee um, sort of talking about, you know, oh, I just suck at this or, you know, honing in on the specifics of, you know, well, what aspect do you need help with? Because the whole procedure wasn't a disaster. The whole clinic visit wasn't a disaster. Your whole lecture wasn't a disaster. So let's go hone in on the specific. And then let's hone in on how personal it is. Are you just terrible or were you having a bad day? Or, you know, you know, is this a sign of your moral character or were you just didn't put in the effort and you didn't spend the time you needed and now you now you've learned from it? And is it permanent? Just because you were terrible today, does that mean that you're always going to be terrible? Or is it possible that this was a temporary blip? And again, this all goes back to that growth mindset. And I think as, as you know, mid-career senior um, faculty talking to our juniors and talking to fellows and residents, you know, really making sure that they're not attributing failure to things that are permanent and pervasive and personal to them. How are there other things that when working with young trainees or young faculty, people early on in their career or just getting into it, mm-hmm. is there a different way we have to build this skill set? Are there different tools that we should be using with that population mm-hmm. versus someone that is 15, 20 years into a career? I, you know, I think that, you know, we, Transitions are times to build resilience, and so I, I certainly think that those happen throughout the career, the throughout the the lifespan, throughout sure. the career. But where you do see some change in junior people, right? They're more likely to be transitioning. They're more likely to be faced with adversity or tough decisions. They're more likely to be balancing home and pers- you know family life with their workload and work schedule, and and now with you know, dual career families, you know, I I think it's a different set of skills. And so combining their own self-compassion and their shared humanity, like we're all in this together, I I think we do need to rethink some of the way we train and offer, you know, support to our faculty. You know, the 8 a.m., 5 p.m. faculty meetings, for example, 
don't work for a lot of people because they're getting their kids to school or they're driving, they're commuting home, you know? So I think there's a lot of concrete things and this is all in the burnout literature too. It's not just how do we cope with all the stressors? It's how do we make our lives easier? And that, you know, I think does differ by junior people versus, versus senior people in a lot of ways. Okay. So if you were speaking to, I, I think that's a great example and actually definitely one that gets cited in the burnout literature, especially the timing of meetings and who has kids, who doesn't have kids and kind of the flexibility with schedules yeah. that that kids do or don't allow, especially <laughs> yeah. currently now. Oh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> From a granular standpoint, is there an action? So if I want to really work on myself and now we might be not diving into a therapy session, but if I wanted to work on myself, what would you have me do to think, kind of reflect and maybe kind of build up my own resilience or build up that skill set or develop one or two uh, skills? Yep. So I'm a big fan of journaling and, you know, it doesn't have to be, um, you know, pouring your heart out, writing about, you know, what you ate for lunch, that type of thing. But, but journaling with purpose of like what went well today and why did it go well can make a, I mean, there's data that shows that that can make a huge difference. If you do that for a week, your mood is better, your sleep is improved. And, and that's as simple as saying, you know, I really enjoy, or I, I did a really great job on this group presentation in class today. And, you know, why did it go well? Well, I work with a really awesome group of students and we all were passionate and put the time and effort in. So you're not just sort of commenting on what went well, you're taking credit for what went well, right? And consciously doing that, um, or, you know, you can do the same thing with other positive emotions like gratitude, you know, what you're thankful for and why you're thankful for it. All of those are part of that savoring positive emotions. And it sounds really corny, but there's strong literature on the impact that has on the stress and burnout of, of mental health um, and regular health providers. Okay, that's a great actionable item. And obviously, all of us in the medical community always love actionable items. <laughs> so yeah. let's take you had mentioned earlier, but a kind of a chairperson could do mm -hmm. uh, about scheduling meetings and stuff. So let's just. Uh, maybe something granular that a faculty member or a fellowship director or a training, an assistant program director, what could they do curricular wise to instill this skill set um, or kind of foster these skill sets? Maybe that's a better way to say it. How could they do work with that? What granular th advice could you give them? So that's, I mean, that's a great question. So I think that you know, we, an, another huge factor in building resilience is a sense of community and a sense of support. And I think training directors and, you know, people who are sort of involved in collaborations or multidisciplinary teams, you know, shouldn't neglect that. I mean, especially with, you know, COVID, we're working remotely and, and not forgetting to host those meetings, those connections, those get togethers to build a sense of community, because that really buffers us against the negative effects of stress, right? You feel more resilient when you know that there are other people around you caring. And I think now we have to be even more proactive about that because it's very easy to not see your colleagues for six to nine months. And if you don't really work that closely with them, 
you, you know, don't really need to interact with them, but you forget about the little things and, and the people who might be struggling in particular, who have less support systems, who aren't, you know, necessarily feeling the, the feeling the love that they need to. And, you know, when you talk about preventing physician suicide, for example, you know, support system is really one of the main predictors of, of that feeling that others are connected to you and others care about you. So I think that's really important. And then I, I also think that the positivity with which you talk about things um, when you're in your didactics, when you are training, make sure you lead with compliments, making sure you elevate people's strengths, you call out successes, you know, those little things all boost morale. And honestly, that's something that every single person working with a trainee or someone they're supervising can do on a day-to-day basis. Absolutely. Yep. And a lot of it's modeling too, you know, modeling to others as, you know, as a training director, um, as a leader, you know, modeling that behavior, modeling, celebrating people's successes, modeling connections, taking time, you know, um, not just with patients, but with staff and, you know, nursing and, and just really creating that culture of, of positivity and of strengths and appreciation. This may be maybe an odd question or maybe not. Do certain populations need different skills developed? Mm -hmm. So I'm a white male, six foot two, lots of privilege here. For trainees that are female, a trainee of color, how or are there different skill sets that would be helpful to engender for them to work through everything else that's complicating this rather than just the day-to-day stress of medical school, day-to-day stress of a training environment, day-to-day stress of being a gastroenterologist? That's a great question. I don't know if I really thought through that. It's probably something I should. So I guess I would say that just off the top of my head that, you know, in order to adapt skills training or adapt these positive messages, it's really important to understand, uh, make sure that people of differing backgrounds have a voice and can, you know, like going back to my point about community, you know, if you're the only woman or the only person of color in your class of fellows or residents or faculty, you know, not having your voice heard can be really devastating. And, you know, I think making sure people's perspectives are considered and honored and elevated. And, you know, I think, you know, you talk about amplifying. So, you know, you as a white man in a a faculty meeting, you know, here's a woman of color say something and it kind of gets dropped. No one's paying attention. You can, as you can, choose to say, I'd like to go back to what so-and-so said and elevate that and make sure that that voice is heard. Or if it is heard, but somebody else takes credit for it, which I can say is a common experience as at least okay. as a woman faculty member, you know, being able to say, oh, well, actually, I really liked how so-and-so said this. But it, it's conscious because I, I think it's easy in the busy times to just everyone just shouts and yells and says they're what they need to say, especially in New York. It's our culture. We talk um, fast and with our hands, but making sure that, you know, everyone has a chance to speak and share their perspective can foster that community. And also at the same time, you're elevating positive skills 
Okay. No, thank you. That's that's very helpful, I think, uh, to the audience at large as we kind of reflect on what's going on in the country as well. Yes. Um, so as we wind down, I do want to ask, I, I'm trying to ask everyone we interview, you've had a very successful academic career. You seem to have found a niche for yourself that you love and you're, you're clearly speaking about it with passion and everything else. Mm-hmm. So for young physicians, young providers, whether that's 10 years out into a career or only in fellowship or med school, what is the best advice you got into having the career you want that you could pass along to them? That's a great question. So I actually think back to my high school piano teacher. Okay. Okay. (laughs) I've had lots of mentors along the way. I'm not, not to not be grateful, but I think about her in particular. And I remember her saying to me, you know, don't ever go into something unless you can't help yourself. When you find the the thing that you can't stop yourself from doing, (laughs) that's how you know, you'll, you'll, you found your, you found your way. And I think that that's, abstractly, that's, you know, a good, you know, good advice. But I think even practically speaking, when you're, you know, it's very easy when you're junior to get into a situation where you've said yes to a million things, where you've lost your focus, where you're sort of slammed with, you know, clinical responsibilities and writing responsibilities and committees. Everyone wants a piece of you. And, and being able to sort of say, can I help myself from doing this? You know, do I, do I have to do this? Is this really something that I can't help myself? And make sure that you have at least two or three things in your repertoire that you really can't help yourself. And that'll make a lot of other things seem more in perspective. And so I would encourage people to kind of do that early on because it doesn't, where I see people start to flounder is when they've overcommitted or they haven't figured out their their niche and they burn out. I love that your advice at the end was also about building one's own resilience <laughs> after a whole conversation. Yeah. About that. <laughs> Just <laughs> echoes on echoes oh, here, Dr. Oh, Keeper. <laughs> so now that everyone's heard your voice, heard your wonderful advice, how can people reach out to you? How can they follow you on social media? How can they get in touch with you? Yep. So I am on Twitter at Dr. Lori Kiefer. You, so you can always tweet or DM me. That's fine. But I'm, you know, I'm at Mount Sinai. I can give my email address. It's my name, Lori.Kiefer at MSSM, Mount Sinai School of Medicine.edu. Um, I love to hear from people. I really cherish caring for gastroenterologists. Um, Like I said, it was accidental that I ended up in your space, but I'm here because I can't help myself. So please reach out. (laughs) Listen, I will tell you as an esophagologist, (laughs) having a colleague like you in this space is a wonderful thing. And uh, as a professional, with all the advice you're giving, uh, you're welcome here all the time. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for being as Dr. Keeper. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the AGA podcast. To reach us, please email us at agapodcast at gastro.org or follow us on Twitter at MJWitsonMD, at NinaNandyMD, and at CSCMD. 
podcast production done by Resonant Recordings. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Thanks for listening and have a good one.